even more so for women. There's just not enough conversations around money. I love being an entrepreneur, but people are being sold a lie. It's a bit like boxing. You've got to take the punches, right? Luck is where opportunity and hard work meet. Yes, we need t-shirts with that on. Right? If I hadn't stolen that letter-headed paper, I would never have got the interview. Chris Eubank, at the time, he was without a doubt the most famous sports person in the country. And he just went, do you want a job? <gasps> and I became the first and only licensed female boxing manager in the country. What did the editor of Cosmopolitan say? Now this is where she's legendary. She I said, have chills. That story is amazing. Like a lot of women, my mum stayed in a very abusive relationship purely because she couldn't afford to get out. There's some heavy stuff in there. Yeah. You either give in or you learn to fight. I just can't give in. I have to fight. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. My guest today is Shah Wasmand, MBE. Shah is a mentor, strategist, and CEO of a $100 million technology fund, and the author of a series of best-selling books focused on how to work smarter, not harder, and plot the path to achieve your goals. Her expertise in the entrepreneurial arena is so outstanding that in 2015, she received an MBE from Her Majesty in her New Year's Honours list. Shah went to the London School of Economics and while she was there, won a competition to work at Cosmopolitan. While she was there, she stole some letter-headed paper, wrote to the boxer Chris Eubank and asked him for an interview. He said yes. And this led him to asking her to become his assistant and manage his PR. Such was the success of this collaboration that Shah started her own PR company aged just 23 and took on the relatively unknown vacuum cleaner company Dyson as one of her very first clients. Though she is clearly a big player in the business world, Shah focuses on being a champion for small businesses, and she does this with her books, workshops, and in her role as a public speaker. The Institute of Directors has described Shah as one of the UK's most connected women, and it's a delight to welcome her, and all her insight and wisdom, and giggles, <laughs> onto this episode of The Emma Gunn Show. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really excited to be here. I know, and we, we, we've we said that we're allowed to laugh during this one, because I'm, we just... I'm glad. <laughs> Because you have like, when you actually put that all together, and I did that make you nervous, by the way, hearing it, all of that? It didn't make me nervous, but I feel like it makes me sound like a braggadocious twat. <laughs> and then I think, well, actually, I just used the word braggadocious. So that probably sounds a bit twatish in itself. Well, braggadocious is just a way of, I think it's your way of sort of like, uh, putting a sort of fluffy lining around. You don't want to sound like you're bragging, but no. you've done these things. Yeah, and I am really proud of them, especially where I've come from. But I think that it's so important to stay humble and connected and your feet firmly on the ground. So, yeah. How do you achieve that when you're making lots of money and you're surrounding you're surrounded by incredibly powerful people? Because... Look, I, I don't navigate or live in the world that you do, but I've been close to the sun sometimes. And it is a completely different reality. And to remain humble, actually, I think is quite the challenge. I think there's a really crucial, oh, there's a really crucial key to that. And that is to choose your friends and your support network wisely. Yeah. You won't necessarily want to spend all your social time with the people that you work with or that you're doing deals with. My social circle has been the same since I was 21. So um, my friendship group is incredibly tight, um, incredibly uh, driven. Uh, we've all grown up together. We've grown our businesses together. In fact, we, we've we all come from you know very similar, humble backgrounds. Most of us growing up on council estates, 
almost all of us single parent families. So we've all had a a connected spirit Mm. and a connected community and drive. And I think we keep each other humble. And I think also maybe there's a little bit of a misnomer around super successful people because I just think that money is a magnifier. And what I mean by that is money doesn't make you a good or a bad person. It's a magnifier. So if you are a dickhead before, you just become an even bigger dickhead. And if you were a kind and generous person before, you just get to be more generous because you have more assets, you have more availability to do things. But I don't actually think money changes you. That's what, You know they say that about fame as well. Yeah. I know fame and money often go hand in hand, but I've heard that a lot with relation to fame. Like if someone suddenly gets famous, if they were dickhead before, they'll be a bigger dickhead, etc. I wonder if that's true if you become famous at a very young age, because I would imagine that's really hard to navigate. So I think that if you become famous later on, mm. then your personality is already developed, your characteristics have already had an opportunity, your friendships. So yeah. you've got some roots. And I, mm. I just wonder... If you become famous at a very young age and you don't know anything different, your whole life has been spent with people saying yes to you and being able to do and buy whatever you want. Mm. I don't know how you, it would be very difficult to not be a dickhead, I think. A hundred percent. Because your view of the world is so skewed mm. that if you have to come down and hang out with us mere mortals, you'd be like, what What the fuck is what? this? What do you mean? <laughs> no. So I, did, I, I don't think I would have liked that. I don't think I would like to have been famous early mm. because I think, I think that's quite different. I'm happy to be financially successful, but being famous, I think, has so many extra layers that I wouldn't, mm. I wouldn't choose. Well, to that argument then, what about... Um, money at different ages like money when you're young versus money when you're older ah this is such a great question because i don't think most people appreciate money when they're younger and especially if you come from a working class background so i think if if you look at people who have made decent money when they're younger who have come from working class backgrounds maybe they were the first person in their family to make any money they don't actually know what to do with it. So nine out of 10 times what they'll do is they'll spend it. Mm. Whereas if you come from a background where you were taught about money and you start making money early on, you'll start investing the money. You'll start making the money make money for you. Mm. You'll start investing in assets. You know, when I started making money, the first thing I wanted to do was take care of my family. Then I wanted to take care of my friends. And then I wanted to go on on lots of great holidays. And fortunately, I was sensible enough to start buying property really young. So one of the things I'm proudest of most is that growing up on a council estate, I bought my first place in Islington when I was 21 with my own money, with not a penny given to me by anyone else. And I think, you know, I think that is pretty impressive. And I think that we should be able to be proud of those things. Mm. And yet, I don't think I was that sensible with the rest of my money. (laughs) You know, it took me probably until I was in my early 30s to start thinking, oh, hold up a second. Maybe I should be doing something with my money other than just enjoying it. Mm. You know, I spent a lot of time enjoying the money that I was earning and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. But I think that as you get older, you start thinking about, especially if you are thinking of having kids or you have kids, you're thinking about what's the legacy you're going to leave. And then you might be thinking about those dreaded conversations around pensions that nobody ever talks about. And I think you get smarter because you're more experienced. Mm. That's a good point. I'm thinking about, <laughs> I think there comes a point, doesn't there, where you just want money because you want to have a certain lifestyle. Yeah. And then you reach an age where you think, ah, I want this to last. <laughs> and so there's a fundamental flip in how you view making money because it's to make to spend and then it's make to live comfortably for as long <laughs> as possible. We There are so many great resources um, in the Western world, online workshops, books to help people learn how to make money. Mm. But I don't think we talk about how to make the money that we work hard for work hard for us. I don't think we talk about it enough. And I definitely don't think women talk about it enough. Mm. I don't think there's enough financial education period for everyone, uh, male or female. But again, I would stress that I think that's even more so for women. There's just not enough conversations around money. I think we've started to have more conversations around the importance of making money. Mm. But at what point do you want to stop making money and have the money that you worked hard for actually make money for you. I think we've really glamorized this idea of making money oh and God. making it quick. 
And it's just bullshit. Like this whole thing around the glamorization of entrepreneurship drives me absolutely freaking nuts. I mean, I would not have it any other way. I'm totally and utterly unemployable. Um, there is no question about it. I'm way too outspoken. I'm I I get too involved in everything. You'd be in uh, HR constantly. I mean, I would be in HR all the time. They'd have a seat right there. There you go. There's the shell seat. But so I wouldn't do anything else. I love being an entrepreneur, but people are being sold a lie. Mm. It's it's and I also think that it the rise of social media, the you know, TikTok fame, Insta fame, the the ability for influencers to make a huge amount of money in a relatively short period of time mm. if they become hugely successful. What's happening is people think that that is a shortcut to success, that Mm. actually what we're going to do is rather than build a business that's sustainable and that can generate income for the long run, what we're going to go for is a shooting star. We are going to go all out in becoming as famous as possible so that we can actually make, in their eyes, as much money as possible in the shortest time possible. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is when you look at the influence who I think are the cleverest, they're the ones who've got businesses behind them. Mm-hmm. They're not just influencers with, you know, a million, two million, five million followers behind them. People want to take the piss out of the Kardashians. Let me tell you, Harvard, if they're not already doing it, they should be doing whole entire modules and sessions on the Kardashian family's rise to fame and how they monetized it. Because that is a lesson. You look at all of those girls billionaires in their own rights mm-hmm. with their own individual companies. That's how you make money. I am so glad you said that because I've had real regret about an episode that I did a few weeks ago with uh, my uh, journalist and former journalist and friend, Dean Piper. So you might know he was on, he was Mr. Showbiz for a really long time. And he was pretty scathing about the Kardashians. And I sort of bit my tongue at the time because I thought, well, it's not for us to have a row about the Kardashians. But I think that there is so much to be learned from them. First of all, how to divorce someone amicably and co-parent amicably, but also how to build a business because what they're doing now with Skims and Good American and all those brands, they weren't the first iterations. There have been various things that I interviewed Kim twice for her fragrances. They no longer exist, but she is now moving. It's a real But does anybody remember that? Does anybody remember those fragrances don't exist? Rihanna's another example. Mm. But prior to her deal with LVMH for Fenty, she had had deals with MAC that probably were financially lucrative for her in terms of payments, but she didn't have a percentage of the company. Mm -hmm. She went into Fenty as a 50-50 joint ownership. That is a bold business Mm -hmm. move. That's how you utilize your fame. But Fenty will now become, in my opinion, a brand that will outlive Rihanna. What I mean by that is there will come a point in the future where some teenage girl won't even know that Rihanna was behind Fenty. Mm. That's incredible. Mm. So I think that the glamorization of entrepreneurship shouldn't put people off for starting their own business or being an entrepreneur. But actually, I wish more people would talk about the realities, the ups and the downs. The, the perfumes that don't work, mm. the cosmetic ideas that don't come to fruition, the 101 other businesses that the Kardashian set up that went out of business because it didn't work. Mm. But but they're machines, so they keep moving forward. So they learn on every mistake to then apply to the next thing that they do to make that more likely to succeed. I love being an entrepreneur and, and I can take the, you know, it's a bit like boxing. You've got, you, you've got to take the punches, right? You've got to be able to take the punches along the way. And the idea, I think, of entrepreneurship that's put out into the media at the moment is it's like all unicorns and rainbows. And that's just not the truth. I mean, it's just not the truth. It takes out what you've just described. It was so brilliant that, brilliantly there. On that path, there are failures. There are things that don't work out. There's also the strategy. So with Rihanna, with the Kardashians, it's, it's long-term. You're absolutely right. These are This is about creating products and brands that will exist long after them they don't need to be involved in the day-to-day and it will still continue on. That's the real, that's the thing that we should be glamorizing. Yeah. Not the the Bentley that someone gets to drive because of all of that stuff that they've done. Because they put in, the one thing you cannot question Rihanna or the Kardashians about is their graft. I mean, mm. they are grafters. And actually it's interesting because one of one of my <laughs> one of my favorite entrepreneurs is actually Curtis Jackson, 50 Cent. And one of the reasons why I I 
just love everything that he does is for similar reasons, you know, he, he's had multiple reinventions of his career um, and it doesn't always work out and he doesn't back down and he keeps pushing forward and he's had such a huge success with power. But what a lot of people don't know is that he made the vast bulk of his actual financial success was from vitamin water. So vitamin water, he used to drink it and he they asked him if they could pay him for product placement in his, you know, in his um in his videos. And he was the first person in that industry, as far as I'm aware, I could be wrong, but definitely the first one that has been very public about it, that looked at the deal and said, actually, I don't want money. I want equity. Mm. I want points. So a point is just a way that, you know, lingo for a piece of equity. So he said, we well, know I want points. So he was given an equity stake in the company. And when vitamin water was sold to Coca-Cola, it's reported that he made 150 million from that deal alone. <laughs> I mean, I think that's pretty damn smart. He's hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is a really incredible story. Before he even set foot on any film set in America, in Hollywood, he owned half of Santa Monica. He came over from Austria, went to business school and just bought up one apartment, then another one, then another one, then another one. He, he owns, you go to Santa Monica, you're probably walking on Schwarzenegger's land. I, I am such a sucker for an underdog story. I am always <laughs> for the underdog, I guess, because that's, you know, the background that I've come from. But I I can't get enough of stories of people who on paper shouldn't make it. And they just decided, actually, you know, I'm not going to accept the cards I've been given. I'm going to deal my own. And you're right. His is actually one of, if people haven't read his autobiography, it is just phenomenal. It's so good. We might sound like obsessive no. fans in a minute. Well, I'm very aware. So I could obviously the whole underdog thing comes into a lot of what we're going to discuss today because I always open, although this is now quite a way into the show, but I always find that it's really interesting to ask guests. It's a really good get to know you question. What's your relationship like with risk? And I think given what we've just discussed about your career and about where you stand on money, on entrepreneurship, I would imagine that risk has played quite a substantial role in that journey. Yeah, most most definitely. And certainly, I would say, in the formative years of my career. And I actually think that the the hardest part is as you get older to be able to maintain your appetite for healthy risk mm -hmm. because I think that as you get older, your appetite for healthy risk, and I do say healthy risk, not crazy random risk, mm -hmm. even healthy risk starts to wane. You start to become a bit more risk averse. And so I'm constantly working on myself to not get into that situation because I think that the only way you ever create anything of any significance is by being prepared to take risk. Okay, so you mentioned healthy risk then. How would you define a healthy risk? And what do you have any other risk categories that you're like, that's a stupid risk, that's a healthy yeah, risk, that's I mean, a bold risk? <laughs> it's funny because I, I, I've never jumped out of a plane. I'm not doing a bungee jump anytime soon. So I, Same <laughs> I feel like controlled risk or a healthy risk is something where I have an impact. Now, that doesn't mean I have control because I am a control freak. Most entrepreneurs are control freaks. But if we're being brutally honest, you know, we have to accept that I can't 100% control the outcome of any investment that I make or any business that I set up. However, I can be a very good captain of a ship and steer it in the right direction. So for me, a unhealthy risk is where I'm putting a huge amount of money into something where I have no control over, where I don't understand the market, and I'm just hoping that it's going to go the right way. Mm. And let's talk about crypto in this for just for a second. I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I genuinely believe long-term crypto is a great investment. However, way too many people have fallen foul of trying to get rich quick from crypto. Mm. So they've invested huge amounts of money into products that they know nothing about and some people got their timing absolutely right, but that's just the same as winning the lottery, right? It, it wasn't skill that did that. Mm -hmm. It was pure luck. And some people 
have lost huge amounts of money. So my view on things that are risky, and I do consider crypto to be more in that category. For me, if you were a crypto trader, you might be like, well, you're right. And I would say, but that's your gig. If you mm. understand it, it's different. But for the general population, I think high risk are things that you don't understand and you don't have control over. So I don't put huge amounts of money into anything that I don't understand and anything that I don't have control over. Is your relationship with risk different in your personal life than it is in your business life? Oh, great question, Ems. Um, I think as I've got older, yes. I, I think I think that would be true. And I think especially after I have my son, um, I think before that I would say no, I'm not I, I think they would probably be on par, you mm. know. I I um I dated a world champion boxer for five years and I would say that our relationship was was, you know, it it that was not a de-risk choice. It was not a safe <laughs> choice, right? Um, it was like a roller coaster. And, and you know, he was phenomenal. We're still friends to this day. But as an entrepreneur, you probably want a partner who's more grounded. You probably mm -hmm. want a partner who is going to be able to, um, you know, when you're flying off into the wind with your crazy ideas, just bring you back down to earth as opposed to somebody who is, is going to probably just stoke the fire and you're just going to, you know, both run off into the wind to get that. Does that mean entrepreneurs shouldn't date? I'm not saying that entrepreneurs <laughs> shouldn't date, but I think you have to be very conscious that if you're dating another entrepreneur, that the highs will be incredibly high, but the lows, if your lows coincide at the same time, and I've seen this with my friendship groups, are really challenging. Mm. So I, I also believe in yin and yang. I think that you have to have a support. I think that that creates stability. So I do think that especially once you've had kids, you take less risk in your personal life. Mm. And maybe actually less risk in your business life, but I'm not sure about that because I work hard to still push myself to take risks. Fundamentally, it comes down to what you're willing to lose. Is that what you would say it is? Yeah, I would. And also having a diversified strategy. So without starting to sound like some kind of financial advisor, I think that your business strategy or your life strategy, your investment strategy should always be diversified, right? Mm. You shouldn't ever get everything you need from one person. And you shouldn't put all of your eggs into one basket. I mean, there are reasons these sayings, they sound trite and cliched. But actually, if you think about it, it's true. You know, one of the things I think goes wrong in a lot of relationships is that we look to the other person to give us everything. Mm. And that's unrealistic. And if you look to make all of your money from, you know, maybe one thing, that's harder. If you put all of your investment into one place and then expect that to deliver you, you know, the golden goose and it doesn't, you're kind of screwed. So I do think that diversification is a good thing. So I think that you're spreading your risk so it becomes a bit less risky. Mm. Well, let's talk about one of your early risks. Okay. Because I let's asked go. you what the biggest risk is that you've ever taken. And you said it was what I mentioned in the introduction, which is at the age of 21, you'd won this competition to work at Cosmopolitan magazine, which by the way, I can't even imagine how cool that was in that era as well. Yeah. Um, because it would have been like, it would have been the heyday of it those titles. It was the heyday. And the editor at the time was the absolutely legendary Marcel Darji Smith. She was just incredible. I adore her. What an education. Yeah. Did you learn a load? I did. And I think to just to unpack this story, because it relates to how she responded to it <laughs> as well. So the biggest risk that I think I took at the time was I... I was at LSE doing an economics degree, but I've always been a true creative. And so I, I entered this competition to write for Cosmo and I became one of, I think, 12, um, 12 female students across the country who were writing and working for Cosmo that year. Yeah. And we got to go into... Um, we got to go into the editor's offices. We got to go into Cosmo. At the time, it was just off Carnaby Street. And I was at LSE, so I could actually walk from one to the other. And I remember sitting in Marcel's office waiting for her to come in. And on the corner of her desk was this pile of letter-headed paper, but it had the emblazoned, you know, from the editor's office with the big Cosmo logo on it. And I, I actually don't know where the thought came from, but I just had this thought pop into my head, which was, oh, I wonder what would happen if I wrote Chris Eubank a letter from Cosmo saying that I had been commissioned by them to interview him. 
And then I thought, well, you'll never know if you don't try. So I absconded. Uh, so this was before you even met the editor. Was this your first day? No, no, I'd already met her. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not that I thought you were sitting Emma. in there waiting to meet her and thought, <laughs> I'll have a bit of that. Uh, no, I'm not quite that brazen. <laughs> Nearly. I think we'd probably... I think I was probably three months into the into oh, okay. the twelve month um, kind of stint, and so I absconded with about ten sheets of letter paper. <laughs> I wrote Chris a letter via his. Why Chris, by the way? I've always been a mad boxing fan. I still am. I still go to all of the big fights, and uh, I just found him fascinating, even all those years ago. And at the time, he was without a doubt the most famous sports mm. person in the country, definitely the most eccentric, uh, definitely the one that most people talked about the most. Mm. And so I thought, I wonder if he's really as crazy as he comes across. Well, there's only one way to find out. I'm going to interview him. Fantastic. And for context, I'd never interviewed anybody in my entire life, <laughs> <laughs> like ever. So I wrote a letter to his promoter, which was Matchroom at the time. And to cut a long story short, he accepted the interview or they accepted the interview on his behalf. And so within a two-week period of time, I found myself waiting for Chris to show up in the foyer of the Grosvenor House Hotel. And after an hour, I was still waiting and he didn't show up. And then the editor, I won't name her, uh, the features editor of the Daily Mirror at the time uh, rocked up and she was due to interview him after me. So he's now an hour late for me and she's there waiting. So another hour passes. <laughs> so it's two hours late. He finally shows up and she's absolutely livid. Uh, and he says, you know, I'm two hours late for Shah, so what we're going to do is we're going to go up to my suite. I've got the presidential suite. There's a separate living room. I'll order lunch. Um, I'll get you lunch talking to her, and I'll do Shah's interview first. And she literally turns around to him. And I've never heard anybody say I this know before. What's and I've never heard anybody say this since. And I thought it was something you heard in, like, movies. She said, do you know who I am? <laughs> and that's just not the kind of thing you say to Chris, to be honest. Because he literally just turned around and I can't do a U-bank. I'm not even I'm not even gonna try, right? I'm not gonna embarrass myself. I'm not even gonna try. But he literally just turned around and looked at her and was like, no. And I don't give a damn. Like it was just like, who are you? So I said, look, I'm happy to wait. Um, I'm, you know, it's fine. You do her interview. I'll have lunch. <laughs> I'll have lunch. I'll just eat and I'll just I'm thinking, I was actually thinking, oh, if I sit in this, I might pick up some interview tips. <laughs> Genius. Maybe I'll learn what I'm supposed to be doing next. <laughs> so I sat there. 45 minutes into the interview, she gets up and she storms out of the room. Front page of the mirror the next day. An hour in Eubanks' company and even the Pope would want to smash his lights out. So it would be fair to say they didn't really get on. Yeah. So we got about 10 minutes into my interview. Chris was clearly distracted by what had just happened. Mm. And so he just turns to me and he says... So, Shah, thinking that I'm a bona fide journalist, how would you have handled that? What did I do wrong? I think naivety of youth is such a wonderful thing, Emma. So I just said, well, Chris, I don't know. Why did you do the interview? I mean, that's her style. That's what she's known for. You know, she's a bit like Jeremy Clarkson is today. That's her style. Or Piers Morgan. Mm. You wouldn't go on her, you know, you wouldn't do an interview with her without expecting that. I said, you've got nothing to promote right now. You've got nothing to sell. So where was the benefit for you? And he just went... Do you want a job? <gasps> Literally like that in that moment. And I just said, yeah. <laughs> I, I had no idea what the job was. <laughs> and that was it, just from that day forward. And that was it. That was it. Within two days, I'd found myself on a plane with him and Barry Hearn flying to Manchester to Old Trafford, where I was told that we were going to put on the biggest fight that had ever taken place up until that point in the country, which is Ben Eubank 2 at Old Trafford. That was it. Oh, my goodness. You don't know what you don't know, right? That's the beauty of youth. That's the beauty of naivety. And I was just like, great, let's go. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll figure it out. Um, and that ended up, you became a manager, a licensed manager. Yeah, is that so right? I, loved, I loved the world of boxing so much. Um, I went and took my British uh, boxing border control um, exams. And I became, at the time, the first and only licensed female boxing manager in the country. 
So if you had to deconstruct that yeah. for somebody to sort of be like, this is why it was successful. Is it just the naivety of youth or what other things were in play there that you think led to that being not just a great story, but also the beginning of this incredible career? Because that's it yeah. really was, wasn't it? 100%. And I, I, I have always given Chris credit because... Obviously, I had to uh, fess up to both him and to the editor of Cosmo what what the reality was. And Chris was completely, he just loved the fact that I was studying economics at LSE. And he thought like he had this like really smart, you know, like side, like you know, check who was going to hang out and like fix all his, like, I think I became a bit like Olivia Pope. Have you, have you watched that? I do. I'm aware of Olivia Pope. Okay. So I literally became like Olivia Pope. And he, he was so generous. And I think. Even to this day, if anybody speaks about him and and people have such a wrong impression of him thinking he's a misogynist, and th- he is the opposite. He was such a champion. He made sure I went into every negotiation. I went into every meeting. I went into, I mean, everything. He gave me so much kudos and respect. And I worked really hard to earn it. I worked 24-7 because I recognized that this was better than doing an MBA. This was better than Mm. doing a degree. I was getting the kind of experience that really you can't, money can't buy that experience. And so when you ask me like, what were the elements that added to it? Partly luck, but I do believe luck is when you create your own luck. If I hadn't stolen that letter-headed paper, I would never have got the interview. Mm -hmm. So I created that part. The luck was that... You had this crazy, egotistical features editor of the Mirror interview him and behave in such a way that, you know, it bothered him and he wanted to talk about it. And then maybe the luck was the naivety of my youth actually answered him truthfully rather than thinking about what should I be saying. I just said what I felt was true Mm -hmm. and that that answer then created an opportunity. But I think the saying is, you know, luck is where opportunity and hard work meet. Yes, we need T-shirts with that on. Right? And the third part of that is, and then you run with it. So the luck is a moment in time where you're, where the opportunity and your hard work meet. Yeah. But it can disappear mm-hmm. in a second. You have to grab that. You have to grab that opportunity with both hands and then you have to run with it. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed it with both hands and I ran with it. And if you had Chris here talking to you now, he would be telling you that he remembers, you know, I was I was saying to you before we started recording that, you know, I've seen him recently and, and he remembers that I actually had, like, I'd spent, I don't know how much money, but a huge amount of money that I didn't have on creating business cards and letter-headed paper and these these like beautiful envelopes with cream with with cream envelopes with uh, chocolate brown tissue paper. He remembered them. He said your attention to detail was impeccable, and I did that because I knew that that was him. His Mm. eye for a detail. Mm. I knew that he'd pick up on those small things. So. Part of it is finding the connections between people. What are the things that would matter to you, but but wouldn't matter at all to the next person? How, how do you, those little micro connections are so important. And then you maintain those things. Mm. So I think it is a combination of timing and luck and opportunity, but it's also being brave enough to run with it. What did the editor of Cosmopolitan say? Now, this is where she's legendary. She was so phenomenal. I mean, she is literally like a living legend. Um, I told her what had happened. And she said, Char, like, what possessed you to think that anyone other than you would <laughs> want to read about Chris Eubank in Cosmopolitan? Amazing. But then this is what she did. She said, um, how much is your student loan? And I said, I think it was about 13,000, just over 13,000. And she said, okay, I have an idea. She picked up the phone and she called her friend over at The Sun and said, I know you've been trying to get an interview with Chris Eubank. Yes, this is a true story. This is how phenomenal this woman was, is. And she I said, I have chills. She, this is what she did for me. So she said, I've got an interview. I can't use it, but I think that you'll like it. 15,000. So she sold the story for me for 15,000, paid off all my student loans. How? That is where, Emma, I learned very early on that women supporting women 
is where it's at. That actually magic happens when women support other women. And you there, there is more than enough for all of us. We don't have to have this scarcity mentality that there's only enough room for one of us in the boardroom or one of us to be successful or one of us to have the top rated podcast. There's enough room for all of us. She demonstrated that to me. Instead of saying to me, you're out of the program, you stole my letter-headed paper, what were you thinking? How could you do this? Because that is how she could have reacted. Mm. She was like, Shah, I don't know why you thought that was like anybody was going to want to read that. But hey, you know, I commend you for your initiative. And the fact that you've been able to pull this off is pretty incredible. And in the moment, she just re- she knew my background. So she knew that I came from, you know, single parent family. She knew I came from a, a council estate and nobody in my family had any money. She So she fixed it for me. Like she just paid off my student loan. I genuinely am having the biggest head rush. That story is amazing. And you're right. It's And the only thing I think that stops people helping each other or women helping women, men helping men, whatever, is ego, right? Would that be your experience? I think it's scarcity. I think people are afraid. Uh, I think people, and I don't find this so much with men, I've got to be honest. And I don't find it so much with men supporting women. This is my experience. And I've got to be on, you know, because a lot of the time when I speak to other women in business, they feel like, you know, things haven't been fair, that they, they've they been overlooked because of their gender. And I feel like I've been so fortunate. I've had so many incredible men in my corner, not just fighting for me, but fighting with me. Mm allowing me to stand on the shoulders of giants i think it's scarcity because i think what happens male or female when you believe if you felt it was true that there was only enough room for one woman to have a top podcast you would feel differently if you actually believe that to be true if you're in a boardroom and you feel or or you're, you're a guy and there's investment out there and you think there is only a finite pot of money and if you don't take it if you don't get it, somebody else is going to take it. And if they get it, if Emma gets it or Shah gets it, there's not going to be any left for you. Mm. Then we act differently. Mm. But if we realize that actually the only person you should ever compete with is yourself and you should collaborate with everybody else, we would make so much more. And when I say make so much more, I don't just mean make more money. We'd create more opportunities. Mm. We'd create more fun. We'd have more friendships. We would, everybody would have a better life because what we'd realize is there is more than enough to go around and that collaboration will always bring you a greater return than trying to do everything by yourself. Mm. Preach. There's so much to unpack there. There really is. There's so much wisdom in that. And I think I was coming from the point of ego because I'm thinking about experiences where you've asked for help and you realize that you think that if the person helps you, they're somehow going to give away something that they've earned. But actually, you're right. It's the scarcity, isn't it? It's the thinking, I've I've got to keep all of it because it will go. So the fear also relates to what you've said, though, because if you ask for somebody for some help and they're thinking, well, if I give that to you, I'm losing it. Mm. But if, if they thought to themselves... I can't, it can't be taken away from me. I can just share it. Mm. You know, it can multiply. It's not a finite resource. It's infinite. So I can help you and you can help somebody else. And actually in the process, it's going to come back to you somehow. It's, it's not, uh, I honestly believe, and I think it's probably been one of the things that's helped me most in my life and my career is asking for help is a sign of strength mm. and not a sign of weakness. And because I believe that to be true, I carry on asking for help. Now, if other people think that me asking for help is a sign of weakness, I'm probably so blinded that I don't even see that that's what they're thinking. And if I did, I I actually wouldn't care. Mm. Asking for help is a sign of strength. Talk to me then before we move on to our, our next question, which we've already kind of covered. But I'm just curious about this idea of takers. Because when you're asking for help, I think my brain's definitely gone here. And I think that means that perhaps potentially some listeners are thinking this too of what about all those times I've given help and I don't get anything back? Or what about those people that I've come across in life or in business and I feel like all they do is take? What's How would you describe that given your experience? Um, short and sharp, cut them out of your life. Um, if they take from you once and don't give anything back, that's a lesson. They do it twice, that's time for action. I just don't keep people like that in my life. And it's not that if I help you, I expect help back in return. It's not that at all. But if the same person keeps coming back Mm. and taking, taking, taking without ever giving, or if that person 
is taken from you but makes you feel uncomfortable for even asking, mm. then that dynamic is wrong. And unfortunately, not all people are created equal. So there are people in the world who will just take at every opportunity with no desire to ever give back to anyone. Mm. So the lesson is recognize who those people are. There's a great saying, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Mm -hmm. And I hold that to be true. So if somebody shows me who they are, I believe them. I'm not trying to to convince myself otherwise. Okay, you've shown me who yeah. you are. I now believe you. I am not going out of my way to help you anymore. That's, we're done there. But don't beat yourself up over it because actually what happens is if you stop helping other people because of how one person has mistreated you, you're doing a disservice not just to other people but to yourself mm. because one of the beauties of asking for help is you're giving other people permission to also ask for help. But it has to be... A two-way relationship has got to be an ebb and a flow. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So opportunity, we're going to talk about opportunity and we covered it. And I love the way you said luck is where opportunity and your hard work meet. Do you think you are on a scale of one to 10, 10 being excellent? Do you think you're good at spotting opportunities? I think I'm a nine. You think you're a nine? What means, what makes you not a 10? Um, I made one really stupid mistake. So... <laughs> Back in the day, before Facebook was a big thing, there was a social network called Bebo. And I was offered the CEO role with a 5% equity stake. And I decided that <laughs> I decided that I didn't really want to work for anyone else. And 18 months later, they sold for 850 million. So I don't think I deserve a 10. <laughs> okay. So that takes you down to a nine. Yeah, I think I missed an opportunity there. Fair, yeah. fair. Do you think you would have enjoyed it though? No. Do you think it would have changed the course of your life significantly? Probably. Oh. 42 and a half million? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can do a lot with that. Uh, uh, I think I was, uh, how old was I? Maybe 32, 33? Yeah. I think 42 and a half million would have set me on a different trajectory. And and the reason I say that as it relates to money is I just believe there's so much more you can do the more you have. Mm. Did it, did you, uh, how did you deal with that? Did you spend a lot of time walking around thinking I could nope. be 40 million pounds richer? <laughs> no, because I think you have to just accept it. Mm -hmm. And ironically, when people ask me, not that you have, but when people <laughs> ask me, what's your biggest regret in business? It's not that. My biggest regret in business is that I didn't set up a sports agency mm. straight after working with Chris when he retired, because that's what I actually really, really, really wanted to do. And because of my background, I didn't feel the validation to do that. I mm. felt like it wasn't a proper job. I felt like, I don't know, I just felt like it was an irresponsible choice. And so I didn't take it. So mm. I actually regret that more than losing the 42 and a half million. That you never had. That I never had. <laughs> I once, and the reason I said that is because I was once given as a present, when I, in my, in the heyday of beauty editor life, I was once given a pair of um, uh, Christina Boutin shoes as a Christmas present. And I then went to a party and I put that bag and a few others in, um, 
into the cloakroom. And obviously when I went back, they were no longer there. And they were the Christian Louboutin shoes I never had. I couldn't get upset about losing them because they were in my possession for less than an hour, really. And if I had had the 42 and a half million, I could have bought you... 20 pairs. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can we can pick that up after the show. So <laughs> so when I asked you about the opportunity that you'd either grabbed or had let pass you by, you said, I try to grab all of them as you never know when the next one is coming. And you also uh, picked out working with Chris, which we've obviously discussed, but also Sir James Dyson. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about this idea of sort of, this is scarcity around opportunity. Do you think that your relationship to grabbing opportunities has changed as you've got older? Do you feel as though maybe there are going to be fewer opportunities and so you're maybe a bit more like, where's the next one? <laughs> Where are they? Where's my next one? Or have they increased or are there more? Oh, I think they are probably always the same. But I think that the way we look for them or our open-mindedness changes. And I think that after I had my son, I became more risk averse and so I think the more risk averse you become the less opportunities you see mm -hmm. but I also think it's a mindset and I think you can change that mindset and I think that one of the ways you create more opportunities is by putting yourself in position to create find uncover more opportunities it's a bit like if people are single and they want to find a partner they're probably not going to find it sitting at home if you want to create opportunities you need to go out and you need to do something mm. you need to be in the conversation you need to be listening you need to be researching you need to so I don't think that there are any less and actually I, it's bizarre because I think this year in particular I felt more driven than maybe I have in 10 years I know why do you think that is if you had to have you thought about it too much or are you just going with it I have thought about it and I think there's a couple of key things one my son's 17 so I think that's a big mm. difference I suddenly feel like I am no longer having to be as responsible a parent as I was before. So there are more opportunities. So I can travel more. I can do things. I can. I think that's one. And I just think I'm driven by the need, um, probably because, uh, you know, of, of how I grew up and everything for that external validation that of proving people wrong. I mm -hmm. think I'm definitely driven by doing that. I'm not saying that's a healthy thing, but I'm just being honest. So I think that I'm a big believer in, you know, the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs is women over the age of 40. I totally believe it. And so I think that's... I it. need to believe it, but I totally believe it. I think it's it a really interesting thing. <laughs> and I want to talk about, I want to talk about raising the game. I, I want to talk about, you know, if you want to have a lifestyle business, great. I'm all for that if that's what you want. But how about we have some conversations around raising serious money and exiting companies and employing hundreds of people and creating thousands of opportunities. Why should there be a point in our lives where that changes? I mean, if you look around the world, the chairman, typically chairmen, not chairwoman, of so many huge companies are in their 70s. Mm -hmm. So why at 40, 45, 50 would our opportunities diminish? Because if you actually think about it logically – that's the point in your life where all of your contacts, all of your experiences all coming together. And if you've got kids, your kids are of an age where they no longer need you so mm. much. So suddenly you've got all the experience, all the contacts, learn all the hard lessons, don't have to be responsible for young kids anymore. Your time is your own. I think now's the time to... I will say that I remember in my 20s and 30s being really hungry for it, just like going into rooms and wanting people to listen to me and thinking that my job title would make them listen and all of this stuff. And it always felt like such a battle. And then something shifted when I hit 40, where you'd go into, and I go in with the same energy of, I'm going to make you listen to me, I'm going to make you pay attention to what I say. And people would. And I'm like, oh, um, great. And I couldn't put it together. And it's because I had the experience. Because I had stuff behind me, I had experience, I had proof, I had data. I could, I wasn't just saying things that sounded good. Absolutely. I had the evidence to prove it. But I had to kind of had to relax. I actually had to relax into it because otherwise, I was bringing this kind of sparse, fractious yeah, energy, energy of it. "Please listen to me." And, and you don't need to do that because actually, your your wealth of experience should be, bring a calmness. It should bring a knowing. Mm. And the same is true for guys. Like I work with guys all the time. And, and I think if you look at my career history, I've kind of worked with alpha males my whole life. And and I love it. Talk about Sir James Dyson. 
he's absolutely an alpha male. People have this misconception, I think, a lot of times that an alpha male is based on a, a physical thing. It's not. Chris Eubank is an alpha male, for sure. But people would assume that because he's a boxer. But actually, it's about taking radical responsibility. Mm. And so James Dyson not only took radical responsibility for his ideas and his beliefs, but he was prepared to go up against everything. And when you look at the company today, and he's, I, I think he's the richest person in the UK now. I believe that's true. Um, he is one of the very few self-made billionaires mm. in the UK. People forget that Mila turned him down and Hoover turned him down and Electrolux turned him down and all the private equity companies turned him down and all the banks turned him down and everyone told him that this would not work. And the only way that Dyson was able to actually launch as a business was because another company in America, Amway, they actually infringed on his patent and he took them to court to sue them in America. That takes some fucking balls especially when the only way that he could pay for that lawsuit was to sign over his family house to the lawyers. Again, talking brings us back to the beginning of the conversation, the glamorization of mm. entrepreneurship. Everybody wants to be a billionaire. Nobody wants to sign their house over to lawyers. Mm -hmm. So that kind of growing up, really being able to cut my teeth, working with people like that, uh, I feel like I was so blessed. I, I should have I should have been paying people to have those experiences. Mm. Let's shift gears a little bit because I think there's been sort of fun friction up to this point. But I asked you how you deal with adversity. Well, how? what would you say your relationship is with when life throws things at you that are just like, you what? I think, I think sadly... I've experienced so much adversity in my life, which probably if you're listening up until this point, it, 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 this might come, you know, a bit jarring because it doesn't seem like that. Because I, I do genuinely look at life through rose tinted glasses. I, I believe I try to see the good in everything and everyone. And maybe that is because I've had so much adversity in my life. Um, and so I think my attitude is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But I think that's my attitude because anything else would have killed me. Mm. You know, I grew up in an incredibly dysfunctional family. My dad was a cocaine addict. Um, he was incredibly violent. He physically tried to kill my mom in front of me when I was eight years old. Um, I was one who called the police. He tried to drive us off a cliff on Highway 101. I was born in the States. Um, I, it's so traumatic. I, I'm surprised I didn't have PTSD from a, from a very, very young age. And... When my mum finally escaped, which is another reason why I am so passionate about advocating for financial empowerment is because like a lot of women, my mum stayed in a very abusive relationship purely because she couldn't afford to get out because she had two young kids and she couldn't afford the rent on her own place with two young kids and she wouldn't leave her two young kids with an abusive partner. And so she was stuck. And I saw that, I witnessed that firsthand and I vowed that would never, could never be my life at a very, very, very early age. And I think as a result of that upbringing, I'm like a lioness. I am so protective of all my people. I'm so protective of my friends. I'm so protective of my family. I'm always got a tiny bit of me that is waiting for something to go off so that I can take care of everyone. Like I very rarely just rest because mm. I'm always thinking, okay, something's going to happen at some point. I need to be ready. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemies. But what it has meant is I have a level of resilience that I probably wouldn't have. And so having been through such a traumatic upbringing, and then when we moved to the UK, we had absolutely nothing. I mean, we had less than fuck all. We we had to wait to be housed uh, on a local council estate. And in that period of time, I lived in a hostel for homeless families. So me, my mum and my brother, who's seven years younger than me, we all lived in, you know, a room probably smaller than this studio um, for nearly two years. And it was shit. It was horrific. And at a time when I just changed schools and I had an American accent and I was two stone overweight because I'd just been eating from McDonald's for the previous couple of years. And so I, I went to a new school 
overweight, American accent, couldn't tell anybody where I lived because I didn't want people to take the piss out of me even more than they already were. And again, you just, you either give in or you learn to fight. And maybe when you really unpack it and look at it, a psychologist would probably say that might also be my kind of, my love of boxing and the sport and boxes is because my inclination is to fight. And I don't mean physically, but I, I just can't give in. I just can't give in. I have to fight. I can't just mm. accept something if it's shit I have to fight for a way out and you know I think as hard as those things have been that that they weren't the hardest thing that's happened to me I, I I lost my son's dad when he was three and I became a widow in my mid-30s and that is the greatest adversity that I've ever faced and and I hope to god that I will never face any adversity that is greater than that because the only thing that could be greater than that is losing your own child. And and so it, it it was horrific. And so for all the ups that you see in my story and my career, um, I have had so many downs, but not just, it's not about losing money. I couldn't give a shit about losing money because here's the thing. If you lose money today, you can make it back tomorrow. But if you lose your time, you'll never get it back. Mm. And if you lose a person that's irreplaceable. There's some heavy stuff in there. Yeah. And yet, as you say, we were, what, 40 minutes into our conversation before, and if you'd said to somebody, do you think she's had a difficult past? I don't think many listeners would have, if you'd paused and said, do you think that, that they would have realized that that was behind, that was part of the story. Yeah, it's a big part of the story because... I think growing up the way I did gave me my drive to be independent and growing up on a council estate and in hostels gave me a level of, I hope, humility and respect for everybody, no matter what they're earning or what they're doing. I think that, ah, oh, I've got to be honest, I can't find a single positive that could possibly come out of losing my partner, my son's dad. Um other than a recognition that life is fucking short and precious. And so on the one hand, I took less risks because I knew I had to be present for my son. So I had to provide a roof over his head. I had to do, you know, I had to be the one constant in his life and provide that stability. So I think on the one hand, I took less risks. But ironically, in the back of my mind, I think it made me want to take more risks at a certain point because... I realize that nothing can actually be as bad as that. Nothing that is ever going to happen in my life. So I was also very conscious that as a mum of a boy, I had to be able to demonstrate to him how to grow up to be a young man. And that's a hard role for a single mum to play. And I'm very fortunate that I've got incredibly good male role models in my life and they've always been in my life and always been in his life but I still wanted to be the mum that would go to every sporting thing and would go to the gym with him and do all the boy stuff with him and I think to a degree overcompensate by showing him how to go against the odds and be resilient and fuck everything and you can make it work and to take risks and to be successful in business and to pursue your dreams. All I've wanted for my son always is to be able to provide him with as many choices as possible. Mm. And I think that having lost his dad, I probably have overcompensated with wanting to show him that everything's possible and don't ever let that narrative determine your future. Mm. I remember as a very young journalist, one of the first people I interviewed was Jacqueline Gold. And I was so, I was a very young new journalist and I had never met anybody like her before. And I'd certainly never met anybody whose net worth I knew and that hers was massive at the time. And it was, it was front page news. And she said exactly the same thing. She said, money ultimately just gives you choice, gives you more choice than anything else. Yeah. What you do with those choices, is completely up to you. But money and having lots of it means you just, you, with, with money, as your money increases, your choices increase. Yeah, totally. 100%. Um, you mentioned a minute ago about a surprise you don't have PTSD. And then you followed it quite quickly by saying, 
you're always prepared for something to pop off, which to me sounds really exhausting. It sounds like being in uh, flight, fight or fright constantly. Yeah. Um, but then you mentioned resilience. And so it, for me, I thought, ah, okay, well, that's why sh she's not a, a sort of nervous wreck who's kind of constantly like shaking yeah. and worry. Do you, do you think resilience is the piece that means that you're not constantly defined by the trauma? I do. I, but I also recognize that after my partner died, I definitely have uh, a two to three year period where I suffered from pretty significant PTSD um, and I saw counselors um, and truthfully, nothing really helped me very much. Um, and that's not to say that I don't think counseling or therapy helps because I really think it does. But mm. for me, in that situation, it didn't. I think I just had to go through it. And I don't actually have memories for two to three years after he died. So people will talk about things and I genuinely don't remember mm. what they're talking about. They'll show me photos and I can't, I, I vaguely recollect being there, but I have no memories mm -hmm. of being there, um, which again is a typical PTSD um, symptom. There's, there's a lot of research recently into something called post-traumatic growth syndrome, which I find fascinating. And maybe in another chapter in my life, I might go and retrain and become a uh, psychologist, therapist. I don't know yet. Um, <laughs> I would find it quite interesting. So post-traumatic growth syndrome is where somebody has experienced um, a level of trauma that would typically lead to PTSD, but it it's like it splinters out and post-traumatic growth syndrome is where the person then experiences hyper growth. They become so focused and so driven because it's as if they are running away from the trauma. So rather than letting the trauma hold them back, which is what PTSD does, the trauma drives them forward. But it's not necessarily like it's the rich cousin. It's not like it's a better option. What it means, and I so relate to this, is you're never off. Mm. You never switch off. You're always about moving forward, forward momentum. Everything's got, you've got to be on, on, on. You've got to be going, going, going. Mm. Because if you stopped, you're scared what might happen. Mm. So do you ever stop? I... That's such a guilty facial expression yes, you just made. Is. Very rarely. Very rarely. I have I've tried to get better. And, and what I've recognized is that I have to enforce the stops. Mm. So I do, but only because I enforce it. So... Now I am going to sound like a bougie twat. I take 17 weeks holiday a year. I know this. <laughs> I know this and I love it. <laughs> I was like, you do what now? Yeah, it was one of the, the kind of like the pre-conditions for me wanting to run my own businesses. It was the ability for me to take all my holidays off with my son. So since he has gone to school, I've taken off pretty much. It'll be 12 weeks on a bad year but between 12 and 17 weeks every year. And I just want for context for people who think that I spend 17 weeks doing nothing. I'm an out and out entrepreneur. I never do nothing. I'm on holiday. My body clock wakes me up at 5, 5.30 in the morning, no matter where I am. And so I'm typically the only person who's awake. So I'll put in a couple of hours work in the morning, but it's on my time. Mm. I don't have things scheduled in my diary. I don't have meetings. I don't have, I don't have to do anything. I love working. I love being creative. I I love the world that I live in. And so work feels a joy most of the time. Um, but I also want that joy to be where I want it to be 17 weeks a year, which isn't always in grey London. <laughs> We're hurtling towards the end of our time together, which is really sad. So I'm going to ask if we can finish off on what makes you hopeful. And the reason why I picked this is because you said something you said, I know I've got at least three more careers to go because you're all about possibilities, new chapters, new beginnings, fresh starts, big changes. And to me, that's just, it's like a flower blooming or it's like the sun coming back up after it sort of started to set. It just feels like, oh, okay, we can go. I love that. And I love it as an answer for feeling hopeful about the future and that anything is possible. I absolutely with every ounce of my being, believe that to be true for everyone, mm. not just for me. I believe that every day that we wake up, we have an opportunity to rewrite our story. If we don't like the book that we're in, 
we get to change it. Mm. I am not a Pollyanna. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not going to say you can flick a switch. You are not going to become Insta famous overnight. You're not going to become rich overnight. None of those things. Nothing happens overnight. But actually with consistency and bravery, everything can change. And I can't comprehend why at this point in our lives, we shouldn't be more capable of change than at any other point previously. Mm. Because logically, the odds are more stacked in our favor today than they were when we were 20. Mm. But we've been conditioned by society to believe that those are the years those are the glory years. Mm. Those are the years that we make our big, bold moves because you don't have responsibilities, because you have youth on your side, because you have all the energy. Well, I just don't think that narrative is true. So I'd rather flip the script and say, hold on a second. Actually, it's right here, right now, when I feel like doing it, when I have all the connections and all the experiences for good and bad, when I have all the 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 war stories and know that when I hit a junction, I now know that I should be taking right instead of left because I took left before mm. and I know where that led me. So the combined experiences that we have and the networks and the friendships and the opportunities, they should make us want to make the next chapter even bigger, mm. even better, even bolder than the ones that have come before. I've been really honest on this podcast in the past about feeling very stuck and that ties in with depression and anxiety and there were times when I would sit on this podcast and put myself in front of successful people and I didn't realize I was doing it at the time but I was basically going help me tell me how you did it if someone is listening to this and they feel stuck whether it's business life whatever it might be they just feel like do you know what today as I'm listening to this I know like in my heart, I'm not where I want to be, but I don't know how, I don't really know where, what that destination looks like or how to get there. What would be your advice to them? Am I allowed to plug my own book? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be in the show notes. <laughs> okay. Um, and I'm going to explain why I'm plugging my own book in answer to this question. Um, 10 years ago, a book changed my life. It was my first book. It was called Stop Talking, Start Doing, A Kick in the Pants in Six Parts. And it was for everybody who felt like that. The book is short. It's uh, 27,000 words. It's what I call inhalable content. You can pick it up at a train station, do a three-hour journey, and you'll have finished it. It is so important not to just buy a book, but read it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know this, but you probably do. 90% of books never actually get finished. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a book that was written in a different way in terms of it's not all text. There's um, imagery because another piece of research or plenty of research will show you that uh, people remember things much more when you tie concepts to imagery. And the book was written to help people get unstuck. It was to help them stop talking about all the things that they wanted to do and start doing all the things that they wanted to do. I'm super proud of the book, not just because actually Sir James Dyson wrote the foreword, um, and the incredible Seth Godin did my front cover blurb, but I actually wrote it for my partner, Steve, who passed away. Uh, I talked to him for so many years about wanting to write a book and I never got around to it. And so my legacy, my promise to him was that I wouldn't leave any dream unturned. That's beautiful. I think that's the perfect place which to end it's been so wonderful chatting to you thank you so much for coming on the show absolute pleasure thank you for having me thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show and why not tell a friend about the podcast if you want to watch what happens behind the scenes then head over to my instagram or i'm at emma guns and if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks obstacles challenges or curveballs that you faced and overcome then tell me on the beauty podcast at gmail.com and it may feature in one of the midweek shows thank you so much for tuning in i will see you on the next one Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.